0: coming to you from the Motor City.
1: Hello and welcome to Detroit's Daily Docket. Today, the doctors are explaining sharp force trauma and we'll discuss some famous cases where the victims suffered stab wounds and other sharp force injuries. After that, our final interview for the season is with Dr. Patrick Hansma. Dr. Hansma rotated at our office as a student and as a pathology resident. He now works in Lansing, Michigan, and is a published author.
0: Hello, and thank you for coming back to Detroit's Daily Docket. In our last full-length episode, we covered blunt force trauma, and injuries that you can see from blunt force trauma, such as abrasions, lacerations, and contusions. Today, Dr. Lavady and Dr. Reyes are going to do a complete 180 and cover sharp force injuries. The category of sharp force injuries covers injuries that are caused by weapons that have a cutting edge, and that edge usually is from a blade. The most common sharp force injuries we encounter are really only of two flavors, and they are incised wounds, which are also known as cuts, and stab wounds. Although there are only two realistic types of wounds from sharp objects that we encounter, there are a surprising number of fallacies out there about these injuries. In this episode, we discuss the wounds that sharp objects can cause and dispel many of those myths as we go along. Also, we'll review the autopsy findings of four famous stabbing deaths. With that said, I'll hand it over to Dr. Reyes.
2: Let's start first with the weapons that create these injuries. Knives are the most common tools that create incised wounds and stab wounds. Knife blades have a point which is the part of the blade that pierces the skin and a tip which is the front quarter of the blade. There's an edge which is the cutting part of the blade and a back or spine which is the opposite edge of the blade. There is a guard which keeps the hand on the handle and there's the grip which is where the knife is held. Kitchen knives have a single-edge blade, meaning there is a sharp cutting edge and a blunt back or spine. Some kitchen knives, like bread knives, have a serrated cutting edge, meaning there are notches in the cutting edge of the blade. While single-edge blades are the most common, you can find more specialty blades such as daggers and push knives that have double edges,
0: meaning both sides of the blade are sharp. I mentioned in the introduction incised wounds and stab wounds. Dr. Lavady, can you give us some basic or straightforward definitions to separate the two before we discuss their features?
1: Both are injuries created by a sharp object. An incised wound is a cut, and its length on the skin is longer than its depth. Even though its length is greater than its depth, a cut can still be fatal, especially on the neck where major blood vessels are just beneath the skin. A stab wound is an injury that penetrates into the body and whose depth is greater than its length on the skin. Even though it penetrates into the body, not all stab wounds are necessarily fatal, especially those on extremities where only muscle and soft tissue are sliced.
2: When everyone thinks of a stab wound, they usually picture a linear wound. But stab wounds can take on a variety of shapes on the skin. This partly has to do with an intrinsic feature of the skin. There are elastic fibers called Langer's lines that run through your skin. If a stab wound is inflicted parallel to these lines, the wound will be linear. If it's inflicted perpendicular or at an angle that crosses these lines, then the wound will be gaping and may even look like a hole or a gunshot wound. The shape is also influenced by movement. The wound may be L-shaped or V-shaped if the assailant twists the blade while it's in the body or if the victim moves or struggles while being stabbed. The length of the stab wound on the skin does not indicate the width of the blade, as the blade may only be thrust into the tip, creating a wound shorter than the blade's width, or it can be dragged while in the body, creating a wound that is longer than the width of the blade. When looking at a stab wound created by a single-edged blade, it will have one sharp or V-shaped end that corresponds to the cutting edge and one blunt or squared off end that corresponds to the back or spine. If the blade is double-edged, then both ends of the stab wound will be sharp or v-shaped. The serrations on a serrated blade are designed to cut as one edge so when thrust into the body it creates a stab wound that is indistinguishable from any other single edged blade. It is only if the blade is dragged or scraped along the wound edges or adjacent skin that the individual striations become apparent as multiple small parallel lines on the skin. The depth of a stab wound is estimated as we do not know the position of the body and thus the exact position of the inner organs and structures when they were stabbed. All we can examine is the body as it lies on a table. Although some want to use the estimated depth to judge the amount of force used to stab, the greatest resistance to the point of a cutting edge besides bone is the skin. So once the skin is cut, the blade is easily driven into the body. And some want to use the depth as an estimation of the length of the blade. But it can be less than the length if only part of the blade was thrust into the body. Or it can be longer than the length if you're stabbed in the abdomen where your abdominal wall is not supported by underlying bone and it easily moves inward with the thrusted blade allowing its point to reach deeper into the body than thought based on the length of the blade
0: so if the length of the stab wound shape of the stab wound and depth of the stab wound doesn't tell us a whole lot about the knife that was used is there anything that can tell us something useful about the weapon
1: the appearance of the wound edges tell us if a double-edge, single-edge, and possibly a serrated blade was used. And for single-edge blades, the width of the blunt edge of the wound tells us the thickness of the blade used in the stabbing. For instance, a wound created by a steak knife may be linear with one sharp or V-shaped end and one squared off or blunt end that measures 1 of an inch in width. Now, any steak knife in the set may have created that stab wound, but it excludes the bigger and thicker kitchen knives in the set. And sometimes we get lucky in that the tip of the blade breaks off in the body, especially if it penetrates bone, and then it can be matched to the knife used.
2: Unfortunately, when examining incised wounds, they do not provide any information as to the tool used to cut the skin.
0: We've been focusing on sharp objects that create stab wounds. But there are dull weapons that can penetrate skin, too. You can call these weapons of opportunity.
1: Right. They are essentially whatever is at hand, such as scissors, screwdrivers, and forks. Because they have dull tips, the stab wounds they create have a marginal abrasion to them, meaning that they scrape the sides of the skin as they punch through, as opposed to a knife that slices through the skin cleanly and without any marginal abrasion. And with regards to scissors and forks, they can create paired-stabbed wounds when both tips pierce the skin. Now, occasionally, larger blunt objects can penetrate the body and result in death, and these are known as impalements. Common examples include falling from a tree onto a fence post or intrusion of a street sign pole or lamppost into a vehicle in a motor vehicle accident. Because these are large blunt objects, they do not ordinarily penetrate into the body, and the deaths associated with them are due to being struck by them. But acceleration of either the body in the case of falling from a tree, or the vehicle or the pole in the case of a motor vehicle accident, gives these blunt objects the force they need to penetrate into and impale the body. In impalements, the wound on the skin will have the features of a laceration or skin tear and not a stab wound due to the blunt nature of these objects. And if you are further interested in impalements, we invite you to Google a publication of ours called Horticultural Homicide for more information.
0: A lot of the traditional thinking regarding the manner of death or sharp force injuries may lead people to think that the distinction between them is fairly cut and dry. But in reality, when you are trying to decipher if the injuries are self-inflicted or caused by another person, there is a significant overlap and oftentimes Such cases are ruled indeterminate. What are some of the thought processes or algorithms that the two of you use?
2: Well, the first thing to consider is the number and location of the wounds. In order to be self-inflicted, the wounds have to be on a part of the body that is easily accessible to you. Stab wounds to the back are clearly not self-inflicted, but wounds to the face, neck, chest, abdomen, and extremities can be. Traditionally, locations such as the chest or neck were favored for suicides, but large offices like ours have seen suicidal stabbings involving every part of the body. Some sources state that in suicidal stabbings, one tends to pull away or remove clothing to expose the area that they are going to stab. We here at the office have not seen this trend, Our suicides tend to inflict their fatal injuries with no regards to clothing.
1: Multiple wounds seemingly indicate that they were caused by another person, but that is not always the case. We follow each wound track to determine if the wound could be fatal, and if so, how long could someone survive with it before losing consciousness? Most cases of multiple homicidal stab wounds have a few fatal wounds that penetrate deep into the body and involve vital structures, and a few wounds that are more superficial with only soft tissue injury and are thus potentially survivable. This is likely an indication of the struggle between the assailant and the victim. But suicidal stabbings can have multiple wounds too, and they frequently do. Most cases of multiple suicidal stab wounds have at least one fatal wound that penetrates deep in the body and involve vital structures, and a few wounds that are more superficial with only soft tissue injury and are thus potentially survivable. This is an indication of hesitating while starting to stab oneself until you finally thrust the blade in deep enough, and we have to make sure that given the number and nature of fatal injuries, that they could have been self-inflicted prior to passing out.
2: Another thing to consider is the presence of other superficial cuts around the wounds. In suicides with, say, wounds on the neck or arms, there are frequently more superficial cuts on the surrounding skin as you sort of see-saw back and forth with the blade until you get the will to cut through the skin. These are known as hesitation marks. In homicides with, say, wounds to the neck, You can also see small superficial cuts on the surrounding skin as the assailant see saws back and forth with the blade to invoke fear or get the victim to submit before they cut through the skin. In these cases, the scene investigation and circumstances surrounding the death are vital in correctly identifying such marks and the manner of death. Frequently, when there is a struggle between the assailant and the victim, we see cuts on the victim's arm and hands that are called defensive injuries. Technically, these injuries simply indicate that a struggle occurred and not who was the initial aggressor. Typically, these cuts are on the palms when the victim grabs the knife, and on the extensor or back surfaces and ulnar or outer surface of the forearm when the victim raises their arm to shield themselves from the blade. Raise your arm as if to block your face from a blow. The part of your arm facing away from you is the extensor or ulnar part of your forearm. In contrast, if you were to intentionally cut your forearm, The injuries are typically on the flexor or front surface and radial or medial surface of your arm. Lay your arm in your lap with the palm facing you and look down. That is the flexor or radial part of your forearm, and the area is easily accessible for self-harm.
0: Thank you, Dr. Reyes and Dr. Laverty. To boil things down, there are a limited number of sharp objects that cause a limited number of sharp force injuries. Because there is considerable overlap in the appearance and associated injuries in both homicides and suicides, a complete and thorough medical legal investigation is very much needed to accurately generate an opinion. Next, we are switching gears and going to review four famous stabbing deaths. And we're going to start with the most notorious, unsolved double homicide in modern U.S. history, Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman.
1: Nicole Brown Simpson was a German-American model and the ex-wife of a former professional football player and actor, O.J. Simpson. Ronald Goldman was a waiter who was returning to Nicole a pair of sunglasses that was left at the restaurant where he worked. She was 35 years old and he was 25 years old at the time of their deaths in 1994, and they were found murdered outside of her Los Angeles home. Interestingly, it was her dog that led neighbors to their bodies. Her Akita, reportedly with bloodstained paws, was found wandering by a neighbor who was walking his own dog. He took the Akita to another neighbor who walked it around the neighborhood, and the Akita led them to its house and the bodies. Brown was found face down and barefoot at the bottom of the stairs leading to her front door, and investigators believe she was the intended target. Goleman lay nearby. Nicole had a gaping incised wound on her neck that measured five and a half by two and a half inches. It was horizontal on the left side of her neck to the mid front, and then it was upward slanting from the mid front to the right side. This wound had smooth edges with no associated hesitation cuts. The blade had severed the neck muscles and major arteries and veins on both sides of the neck, transected the airway, and extended into the spine. In other words, she was nearly decapitated. She also had four stab wounds on the left side of her neck. The wound tracks for these stab wounds was obscured by her near decapitation, and the blunt edge of these wounds measured 1 30 second of an inch in width, so it was a very thin blade. She also had three stab wounds on her scalp, one on the left side and two on the right. She had a few defensive type injuries on her hands consisting of cuts on her right index finger and back of her left hand and small abrasions on her right ring finger and back of her left hand. Other injuries included a bruise on the right side of her head and abrasions on her right temple and left upper back. Her cause of death was ruled multiple sharp force injuries and her manner of death homicide. Ronald had complex sharp force injuries, meaning that they were a combination of stabbing and cutting, and these were on both sides of his neck. The one on the left side measured three inches long and the blade extended for four inches through his neck at an upward slant, severing the neck blood vessels before the blade itself actually exited his neck behind the ear. In between these wounds on his left neck were two additional long and sized wounds and two additional small cuts were on his left earlobe and the scalp behind the left ear. The wound on the right side measured five-eighths of an inch long and the blade extended for two inches through his neck at an upward slant and injured muscles and soft tissue only before the blade exited on the back of his neck. Superficial cuts extended from the edges of this exit stab wound. He also had an additional four stab wounds on the right earlobe, right and mid-back of the scalp, and had more than nine incised wounds on the front and right back of the neck, the right side of his face, and the left ear. He also had an additional six stab wounds on the body. Three were on the right chest, and the blunt edges of these wounds were similar to that of Nicole's wounds. Two of these wounds entered the right chest cavity and into the right lung, resulting in bleeding into the right chest cavity. One stab wound was on the left abdomen, and it sliced the abdominal aorta, resulting in bleeding into his abdomen. The two other stab wounds were on his right flank and his left thigh, and both were superficial. He had multiple defensive-type injuries on his arms and hands, consisting of cuts on both palms and abrasions and bruises on his right arm. His cause of death was ruled multiple sharp force injuries and the manner of death homicide. Based on the autopsy and scene findings, this is what investigators believe happened. Nicole was stabbed multiple times in the head and neck and had few defensive wounds, implying a very short struggle. They believe that Ronald interrupted Nicole's murder. He was stabbed multiple times in the body and neck and had multiple defensive wounds, implying more of a struggle than Nicole. And they believe that he was attacked with one hand while the assailant restrained him with a chokehold with the other. They then believe that after the assailant killed Goldman, he or she returned to Brown's body, put their foot on her back, pulled her head back by the hair, and then slit her throat.
2: Now let's go back a bit farther to another famous stabbing death, Sharon Tate, which illustrates that competently performed forensic examinations can still be properly interpreted even 50 years after the fact. Sharon was an American actress and model who was married to director Roman Polanski. She was 25 years old and eight and a half months pregnant at the time of her death in 1969 at the hands of disciples of Charles Manson. A housekeeper reporting to work found three people murdered outside of the home and Sharon and another person murdered in the living room. Sharon was wearing a bra and briefs and was lying on the living room floor. A nylon cord was looped around her neck and went over a support beam in the ceiling and was then looped around the neck of another person. Sharon had 12 stab wounds on her body. There were four stab wounds on the left chest that went through the chest wall and into the heart with bleeding into the left chest cavity and sac surrounding the heart. There was one stab wound on the right upper abdomen and eight stab wounds on the back. There were also stab wounds on each arm and on the back of the right thigh consistent with defensive type injuries along with two cuts on her left forearm. Her baby was not cut out of her but died because his mother had been murdered. She also had two abrasions with surrounding bruising on her left cheek and an abrasion on her left neck with no evidence of asphyxiation from the court. And finally, a case that illustrates the fine line between homicide and suicide with multiple stab wounds. Stephen Paul Smith, who was also known as Iliad Smith. Iliad Smith was an American singer and songwriter who was 34 years old at the time of his death in 2003. He had a history of alcohol and drug abuse, self-mutilation with cigarette burns, ADHD, and depression with a previous suicide attempt and chronic suicidal ideations. He was at home with his girlfriend with whom he was fighting. She reportedly locked herself in a bathroom and when she left the bathroom, she found him alive and with a knife sticking out of his chest. She pulled the knife out and called for help. He was taken to the hospital, where he died despite resuscitative efforts, including emergency surgery to repair injuries. When the girlfriend was questioned by authorities in the home, a suicide note written on a post-it note was found on the kitchen table. Illiot had two stab wounds on the chest and both went inward to the left and downward in the body. One was to the left chest and it went through the chest wall, and it is a fatal wound from bleeding into the chest cavity, though not immediately, as it takes time for the blood to accumulate. The other was more in the mid-chest and it went through the edge of the sternum and into the right ventricle of the heart. This wound is also a fatal wound, even with the surgical repair of the heart injuries. There were two incised wounds on the medial right upper arm and the left palm near the thumb, which are similar to those other defensive type injuries talked about in this episode. Toxicology revealed several medications in his system that were either therapeutic or subtherapeutic and did not contribute to the cause of death or were believed to have rendered him incapable of inflicting these wounds himself so is this a suicide or homicide signs pointing to suicide are his history suicide note and that is it's possible that he could have inflicted these two wounds himself signs pointing to homicide are the circumstances around the incident including the fight and the presence of defensive type injuries on his arm and hand his manner of death was correctly ruled indeterminate
0: okay welcome back we have a special guest with us i've known dr hensma for a very long time now we've gone to the same residency at william Beaumont hospital and he's followed similar career paths as i have but i'd like him to tell you about how he got here so i'd like to turn the mic over to dr hensma
3: Thank you, Dr. Sung, for having me in the studio today. This is uh, a great honor and a lot of fun. Um, I started off uh, actually at Michigan State University. I believe you were a Wayne State grad, if I'm yes. not mistaken. Yep. Uh, but Michigan State and then on to Beaumont Hospital just a few years after you for residency in anatomic and clinical pathology. During both my med school and residency residency, Interval. I had the opportunity to rotate down here as a uh, medical student and resident in forensic pathology at the Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office and had a tremendous exposure to forensics that I think probably is unrivaled for certainly any other medical student and possibly any other resident, which prepared me beyond words to go on to my fellowship in forensics in Cleveland at the Cuyahoga County Medical Examiner's Office uh, where I gathered more mentors in addition to yourself and and Dr. Lavity here in Detroit, Dr. Philo, Dr. Gilson, Dr. Dolanac in Cleveland, among many others, uh, trained me well, and I was very blessed to see a very different operation and setup in Cleveland compared to Detroit. And and in fact, I do encourage anybody looking at a career in forensic pathology that's had exposure to one office try your hardest to, to go to another office when you have the opportunity and see how things are done because there are many, many ways to skin this cat. And I have been very blessed to see that both in my training and now in my career. And so here I am practicing.
0: Yeah, I think that's pretty common in the field of medicine where if you have, or sorry, early on in your training, if you have the opportunity to go to different offices or different hospitals, it's always encouraged because you're right. Nobody does it the same, and it's not necessarily right or wrong. It's just a different way of approaching. Exactly. Yeah. So if we back up a little bit, when you are choosing your your residency for pathology, what sorts of decision-making processes did you go through?
3: Well, I was most eager to stay here in Michigan, and I did cast a pretty broad net Backing up a little, I am an osteopathic physician, and we are a true minority in pathology. And having separate board exams that are our licensure exams, I also had to take the USMLE or the MD exams to make myself a competitive applicant being compared to a pool that was 99.9% MD applicants, and then cast a very broad net interviewing uh, all over the Midwest and New England. And then made my selection based off from both my prior contacts, um, where I had rotated as a med student, plus non-professional components, which was personal life. My wife and I, both being from Michigan, I most strongly wanted to stay in the state. And uh, for me, uh, my only family member who was living in the metro Detroit area was my brother, and he had his first child shortly before... Uh, I started the interview season for residency, and when it came down to it, my first two choices were Northwestern University in Chicago and Beaumont Hospital, and I changed those two on my rank list. One and two flip-flopped them a thousand times uh, before I finally settled with Beaumont as my number one choice and was fortunate enough to match into my first choice uh, and stayed here and so I could be close to family and be able to continue to be a support system for my brother and his wife with their first child. So there's a intricate dynamic between professional components and personal components, and every individual is going to do it differently. And it's the only advice I can give is just follow your gut a little bit and Things that seem like, oh, there may be problems in this program or just my personality is not flush with the personalities that I met in that department. Trust those things and make your choices based on that.
0: Yeah, It's really hard to know until you're actually in that spot where you're working with those physicians. And for those people that are currently in residency and maybe they are second guessing themselves as far as is this the right program for me, there are always options. I recommend talking to your program director and just having open, honest discussions about how your training is going. Now, something that I found at Beaumont was that all of the staff there was very open to how I wanted to formulate my education. They were very open to me pursuing forensic pathology. I didn't receive much resistance to that. I know that's not always the same in different programs, but that's how it was for me. How did you experience that?
3: Yes, Beaumont is very forensic friendly. I was kind of a fly on the wall for a conversation between the program director, Jackie Mackness, and the then department chair of anatomic pathology, Dr. John Watts. Uh, I was in the uh, fluorescent microscopy room right outside one of their offices, and they didn't know I was there. And it was right during match season that Dr. Watts approached Jackie about the candidates, and he asked her, what is it with this program and all the forensic pathologists that we keep matriculating? And and it's she didn't have an answer, uh, but it's true. Beaumont has been very forensic friendly. They have not looked down upon us forensic pathologists and have encouraged us, you know, to to pursue it with gusto. And they don't. Uh, view that as any negativity on your application to their program. And as long as you perform well in all your other service rotations there, they're never going to look down on you for your career choice. And so that that was wonderful. And they were very supportive. And um, I, frankly, I'm just grateful for the opportunities I had and that that was where I trained.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, you rotated here at this office during residency, and also actually previous to pathology residency, and you did your fellowship at Cleveland. If you were to build your ideal forensic pathology fellowship, what are some of the things that you would look for?
3: You know, it's interesting. That has changed with time as I have worked. And I don't currently work in a practice that has fellows, but my current practice is hospital employed. And so we contract with five counties. And so I'm a hospital employee. And we kind of have to keep our customer service and marketing face on, you know, wear that hat with some degree of regularity. And it's taught me a lot about the different dynamics as opposed to a freestanding medical examiner's office that has a, a degree of independence that others may not enjoy. And so With that private practice has come a very different dynamic in investigations. We use contractors for our investigations rather than having full-time career investigators that are ABMDI certified. Uh, We do have some of those, but they're not working. Most of them are not working full-time for us where that's their whole career. And so... When I moved into this position, I found that I had to do a lot of work training investigators, and I was not expecting that. Um, And that was some of my earliest feedback to Joe Filo, the program director in Cleveland, after I was in practice for a little while. I said, I'm so thankful that he was proactive in getting his fellows out to scenes with the best investigators they could offer. And I hate being in my office, so I was always looking for opportunities to go to the scenes. And so I did more than my requirement. And I would strongly recommend any fellow, not knowing where they're going to land in the future, really get a good solid foundation in scene investigation and what a good report from your MEI should look like so that you can work more efficiently and more effectively and also don't have to defend things on the stand that you were left scratching your head about in your own MEI's report. I've had a number of reports that you know were brought to me where I read them, and I'm not even sure what they were trying to communicate. Mm-hmm. And we have polished our MEIs at our practice a great deal now, and a lot of that has fallen by the wayside, and I'm so thankful for that. The other obvious things are um, diversity of cases— Don't shy away from the homicides. Don't shy away from the pediatric cases when you're a fellow. Just grab hold of them and do them. Um, Neglect cases, complex medical stuff. But then also make sure you know how to sign out an overdose. You know, if you go someplace that is just going to say, well, the gunshot wound cases are fellow cases and you do 180 gunshot wound cases, do you know how to interpret a methadone intoxication case, which that's, you know, toxicology is bread and butter forensic pathology. So seek those out.
0: Um, I think you bring up very good points. You're right. You never know where you're going to end up. You never know where you're going to practice. And if you don't have that foundation or that base, you're going to struggle a little bit when you first starting out. And if you have been to the scenes or if you have an idea of how you're going to handle the natural causes or the natural cases, then that's really going to be a benefit to you. And I agree. A gunshot wound, in the end, you have 10 holes. It's it's no question why you're dead. It's the other, the more natural disease processes that can leave you scratching your head.
3: Absolutely. You know, the uh, thing that will teach you the gaps in your knowledge most quickly is having to turn around and teach those subjects. And so when I found myself having to train investigators... I learned what I really did or did not know about how a scene should be processed. Mm-hmm. And the same will come true for any autopsy that you do. As if you have to explain it, say, on the stand, uh, you will <laughs> rapidly learn how well you're practicing.
0: Mm-hmm. So how long have you been a forensic pathologist?
3: Uh, let's see. Uh, I finished my fellowship in 2016, so I'm four years into my practice.
0: And if you could look back, to Dr. Hensba on day one of practice? And now, what would you tell him?
3: Wow, that is a really good question. I have not thought about it in that terms. Um, uh, There are so many lessons that I'm still learning. I think I'm still young enough that I'm not even fully sure how I have evolved as a practitioner yet. I will say that I still enjoy actually doing autopsies. That's still my favorite part, is actually doing the dissection. And I I mentioned I don't like my office. I would rather be in the morgue cutting. And, And I guess if I were to look back on myself four years ago, I would encourage myself by saying, don't worry. Four years from now, you're still going to love it mm-hmm. uh, because I have had days where I've come home to my wife and said, I don't want to be a forensic pathologist anymore. And and by the time I get a good night's sleep when my kids allow it, which is seldom, but <laughs> when I get a good night's sleep and I'm refreshed in the morning, I love my career again. Mm-hmm. But there there are some long days and some difficult days and uh, some days are frankly confounding where mm-hmm. you walk out and you're not sure what just happened or what you even accomplished. You know you worked hard, right. but nothing got signed out, and you're, you're left scratching your head with, what did I just do with that entire day?
0: Mm-hmm. I think as you get on in your professional career, the normal progression is to take on more administrative roles. And something that, when I talk to various administrators, something that they always say is that they really miss being in the post room, really miss having their hands on the organs and uh, they're stuck in meetings all the time and that's really not what they originally thought that they would be doing so you know hold on to that love of the autopsy it's, yes it's really important yes so now that you're four years in I know that you are actually incredibly busy can you tell us and the readers no can you tell the listeners what you've been up to
3: uh, well um as you mentioned, readers, uh, I'm writing a lot. Um, I have finished and published my first novel, which, as it stands right now, is my only attempt at fiction. Um, I have almost a dozen other nonfiction books that I have in the works in various topics. Uh, but I started writing that novel all the way back in medical school, and it kept getting pushed to the back burner, uh, you know, as, as you can recall how busy you were in your medical training. Um, so it took 11 years of actively writing that thing before it was finally completed. But about two years ago, I finally just said, "I'm finishing this thing," mm-hmm. and and I I'm going. I have been quote, writing a novel, you know, for a decade. And I want to have written a novel. And so I, I kept myself very busy um, with three kids being born in the process and getting my board certifications. I was filling time, gathering ideas and, and honing my plot and my characters and, and wrote this novel called The Grave Below, which is... Uh, That title is a reference to Isaiah chapter 14, where there's this really ominous Bible verse, the grave below is all astir to meet you at your coming, which is like downright horror movie level ominous, in my opinion. I just thought that was fantastic. And that's been kind of my baby for a long time. And I hope that the uh, readership uh, enjoys it as much as I enjoyed writing it.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Uh, I don't want to give too much away from... Uh, of the book or the plot but you have several characters ryan for example
3: Idolette, zoe you've uh, read it oh i have the book <laughs> it's in my office <laughs> lots of people have the book but have not read it <laughs>
0: <laughs> something that i am no good at is actually writing it takes me forever hmm. where did you find the time to i know you said you've it's been evolving over a decade but it still takes a lot of concentration a lot of time uh, where do you have that time
3: I did a fair bit of it when my wife would take the kids to visit the in-laws. You know, if she'd be out of town with the kids, and I, if I had an, an evening free, I would say, I'm not going to gonna watch a movie. I'm going to sit down and write. And the most frustrating of those when would be when I had a whole afternoon or evening to write, and I would write a chapter or two and then go back and reread it and hit select all and hit delete. <laughs> it's like that was terrible, mm-hmm. you know, and that was, you know, four or five hours, whatever it might have been of just writing, 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 and, and it's gone and hopefully appropriately so. But I, uh, I was motivated by the fact that I was running out of things that I enjoyed watching. Also, I'm a big horror movie fan and I realized how much I was starting to despise the horror genre and was starting to think to myself, at least initially when I started writing this, that I felt like I could write better than uh-huh. what I was renting. And so I gave it a shot and I was pleased with what was happening. So a lot of it was just that time that you have where you're going to let yourself have some downtime and veg and watch a movie. I didn't watch somebody else and, and Allow someone else to entertain me, I tried to just take that time to entertain myself. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of fun with the writing process. There is an interesting phenomenon that I have noticed happens, and maybe I'm the only one who's psychotic enough that this happens to, but I hope it happens to other authors is that I would sit down to write a chapter with a plan of what I wanted to happen, and then I would find myself behaving more as a transcriptionist mm-hmm. than a writer and I was just following my characters, and it would come out totally different. Things that I needed a character to say or do, they ended up not saying or doing because they did it all on their own, totally different than what I planned. And I'd get to the end of the chapter and be like, wow, that was different. Now i got to write a whole other chapter to dovetail into this because I wasn't planning any of that. Mm -hmm. And so it it really was kind of just watching the characters do their own thing, which proved to be a lot of fun. And. I didn't go into this as a novelist, <laughs> you know. I don't have a degree in literature. I don't. I took some writing classes in high school and college, but um, I would encourage anybody that thinks that they have an idea, go ahead and try and write it and see how much fun the process actually is.
0: So, when you first started, no, okay, not first started, but when you were developing the plot in your head, did you have the end figured out and just had to fill in the middle, or did as the book evolved? ending change
3: the ending changed a couple times as the book evolved it um, a lot of things changed many times over as it evolved including a lot of the characters names which got very confusing Mm -hmm. as I was writing because I'd forget and interestingly enough as I changed characters names I felt like their personalities changed Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know why that happens but it does. When I would rename a character, I just would kind of decide, I I don't like what I named this person. I don't think it fits what I've been doing. And I'd think up a name and rename them, and then I would find myself immediately thinking about them as a different person than the character I had been writing. Mm -hmm. And so I would find I had to chase that phenomenon with different activity within the book. And so now the plot is changing. Um, The book is set between, or alternating between the 16th and 21st centuries. And so there's really two parallel stories going on back and forth between each other. And both those plot lines changed a lot. And there were many times where I would sit down having to write, say, a 16th century portion, and I would just look at it and say, ugh, I'm Mm -hmm. not feeling it. And so then I would try and write the 21st century portion. So I'm just I don't know, kind of like when you sit down for to watch a movie and you say, no, I don't want a horror movie. I want an action movie. Mm-hmm. And and I would sit down and say, I'm not in the mood for a period piece. I'm not going to write this. And so sometimes it was very forced. And other times it was just following the character's lead and seeing where it landed. And in, on the whole, I'm pleased with what eventually happened. And the feedback has been positive for mm-hmm. the most part. But maybe everybody's just being polite. But I hope people enjoy it. Oh, I'm sure. Now – I think with a lot of writing, the, the
0: genuine nature of it comes out when you are putting some of yourself in. Now, once again, I'm not going to go into the plots too much, but I think some of who you are came through, at least some of your background came through in the development of one of the characters.
3: Yes. Yes. I put a number of superficial things from my youth on the character Ryan. Um, I worked as a deaner or autopsy assistant before medical school. And I had encountered online a pathologist's website uh, where he stated that he thought deaners had great character potential for fiction writers, that they just seemed like a character that would have a lot more going on, you know, than what's on the surface. And so I seized hold of that, having been a deaner myself. And so I was able to work some of those things into Ryan. Um, the, there's a Christmas Day autopsy scene with a pathologist's assistant and Ryan the Deaner and that is based on a real Christmas Day autopsy that I did with the PA Chuck who trained me so the, the character Phil is based on Chuck Chuck knows that <laughs> I'm gonna get him a t-shirt someday that says Chuck is Phil and that you know that's real so I got to work that stuff into that. Um, one thing I did, you know, it's kind of nerdy, but when I was a teenager, um, there there's a cemetery in the novel called Greenwood Cemetery. And that is based on a very real Greenwood Cemetery in Grand Rapids, Michigan, that was very nicely situated, like, right in the center of the neighborhoods that I and my friends grew up in. And so we were frequently wandering through there. And one thing we would do as teenagers was Halloween night, after all the parties were over and stuff... We would drag all the jack-o'-lanterns into Greenwood Cemetery, like while the ghost hunters were showing up and the cops would come patrolling through for vandals and stuff. And you would, we would light the candles in the jack-o'-lanterns and put them around the cemetery and sit back kind of in the shadows up on a hill and watch those moments where people realized that they weren't alone, mm-hmm. which was just so much fun. Um, it's, a, it's a nerdy kind of entertainment, but I highly encourage you to try it if you never have. And, and it's kind of a benign humor for messing with the police. They probably didn't appreciate it, but it was fun. Mm
1: -hmm. And
3: you could just watch them roll around a curve and then, you know, where there had been nothing before, suddenly there was a lighted jack-o'-lantern staring at them and they realized they were not alone. And so it was spooky. And so I wrote that in because I needed Ryan to be able to come and go from this cemetery without a body in tow. Mm -hmm. You know, he's... He is a grave robber at night. That's not giving anything away. Uh, if you haven't read it, you find that out very, very quickly in the story. And so I needed reasons at certain times for him to come and go from the cemetery without having just dug up a grave and hauling a body out. So I used that. <laughs> I wasn't ever really sure if it was the right thing to do, but I had fun writing it in. And maybe it will inspire other people to fill cemeteries with jack-o'-lanterns on Halloween night. I don't know. Have fun, kids. <laughs>
0: you mentioned that you're working on some other things, nonfiction particularly. But before we get on to what that is, do you find it easy switching from fiction to nonfiction as far as the content?
3: Mostly, yes, depending on the day. Um, They kind of serve as breaks for each other because as I was finishing the novel, I was starting other works. And so sometimes you just kind of get bored or you're not feeling inspired um, and so you you want to work on something else. I don't know. Maybe other people don't get as bored as I do, but I constantly just feel like I need to fill my head with something. I, I have projects I want to be doing, and so that's, that's what I do. Um, so transitioning over to nonfiction was, for me, pretty smooth. It is still the writing process, and there are plenty of days when I sit down to do it and then immediately just walk away from the computer and say, I, I am not in the right frame of mind to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have so many projects going that I usually, if I sit down to write one and say I'm not in the mood, I can whittle away at one of the others.
0: Mm-hmm. But not to commit you to any of them, would you like to share some of uh, sure. your ideas?
3: Yep. Um, the one that is most proactively being done, it's in the hands of my graphic designer, finally, after years of effort, uh, is actually not really writing per se. I'm working on an atlas of human anatomy Mm -hmm. at autopsy. Mm -hmm. There has never been one, amazingly. Uh, Nobody has ever done an atlas committed directly to anatomy that is viewable through autopsy. Mm -hmm. And I have seen enough medical students and physicians in training that walked into an autopsy and didn't know that the spleen wasn't a kidney, you know, when you hold it up and say, here, weigh this. And they, you know, go to ask, which is this left or right kidney? Well, that's a spleen. Mm-hmm. So I have seen that enough that I realized how poor anatomy training is becoming in the med schools as it is drifting out of undergrad. Um, you're not getting the exposure early and the med schools now are transitioning so much over to digital Mm -hmm. that the graduating physicians now are not able to recognize things literally in the flesh, Mm -hmm. you know, so they're dependent on, uh, Textbooks that are, you know, paintings, Netter's paintings were done in the 1930s and 40s. So they're paintings and they're idealized. Um, There are a few atlases out there that are based on cadaver anatomy, but as anyone who's done an autopsy knows, a formal and fixed embalmed skinned cadaver does not resemble what we see Mm -hmm. at autopsy. So I am hoping that I can offer a little bit of respite (laughs) to people and give them something different to look at and catch them early on. Um, By using autopsy anatomy, we introduce med students much earlier to the autopsy and therefore hopefully pathology and forensic pathology. So there are a number of images in the book that I'm working on that are captured Uh, It's labeled anatomy captured through a forensic lens, so a shotgun entrance wound of the face that has split wide open the face. You know, you now have a view into the skull, Mm -hmm. you know, so I label all the anatomy I can see in that and gives you some exposure to forensic concepts. Oh, that sounds really exciting. It's, it's been a labor of love. Oh, yes. mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, I've had some really good help doing the labeling from students. I've, I am personally responsible for all the anatomy labeled in it, but I've had a lot of help uh, getting it uh, digitally, uh, shall we say, established to mm-hmm. turn over to the graphic designer. A number of students have helped me. And then um, I'm a lover of history, so I have built up quite the library on the history of the autopsy collecting antiquarian books on autopsy method. And so I am working on synthesizing all of that into a book as well, trying to capture basically every autopsy method I can, wherever I can throughout history. And that is, that's pretty slow. (laughs) 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 I'm reading a lot and having to extrapolate autopsy method based on you know, statements in a book that were not intended to get at what the method was, you know, as, as pathologists of the 19th or even 18th or earlier uh, centuries have, have explained what their findings were doing a a plague autopsy. I have had to reconstruct what their dissection must have been to accomplish that. So that's, that's, it's going to be a narrow audience, even amongst pathologists for that book, but it's, it's probably my top, passion is writing that one.
0: Um, Where do you see yourself in, let's say, five, ten years?
3: Well, if my kids have their way, I'll probably be dead because (laughs) I have three boys all below the age of eight, and they are aging me at a rate that I cannot hardly believe. Um, That third kid... You know, two kids we could handle, but when you have three kids, you, you and your wife go from, you know, you're, you're no longer playing man to man, you're playing zones. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it does you in, uh, but they're a real blessing. Um, so, you know, in, in a few years, I'm hoping I have the most difficult of my projects as far as book writing. I hope I have those done and <laughs> I can finally just scratch those off the list, um, I'm not currently interested in transitioning into anything administrative in my career. You know, we mentioned that topic before. I still love just being in the autopsy room, doing the work there. Um, Would I turn down such an opportunity if the right one came along? Not necessarily. I, I could see myself transitioning into... Um, deputy Chief or Chief at an office somewhere, if that's where the spirit leads me. But right now I'm happy at my current practice, working under my current boss, and I just hope it stays stable or grows. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that that is worth reflecting on as, as a real a real blessing. There are plenty of people out there who are just in the grind doing the work, not sure that they can get out of it, Mm -hmm. and not sure what they're doing it for. Mm -hmm. And I don't ever feel that way about my career. And I hope that other forensic pathologists can say the same.
0: That's great. Now, bringing it back to current day, uh, throughout the country, uh, actually throughout the world, the current pandemic has affected all of us. Yes. Have you seen much change in your own practice?
3: We had to restructure early on in 2020 how we um, navigated these waters. Uh, You know, boots in the trenches, what do we do in the autopsy room, you know, was a real question. And so early on and for several months, we had our team broken up. We have three pathologists at our practice. And so each pathologist was assigned their permanent autopsy assistant. And we only had one team per day. Signed. And so you cut everything that came in with your one autopsy assistant. And I was working with someone who was new to our office. She had done investigations before and had only just transitioned over into being an autopsy assistant. And had rapidly figured out it wasn't a good fit for her. She was a good employee, no hard feelings, but she did not like doing autopsies. And that happened right As COVID started. Mm -hmm. And so I, for the next few months, was teamed with a very reluctant autopsy assistant. And so I did a tremendous amount of eviscerating, Mm -hmm. which I should say, getting back to an earlier question, when you're looking for your fellowship. (laughs) Do that. (laughs) Get a lot of eviscerating. Yeah, do it. Just take the time to learn how to do it because I had to do a ton of it Mm -hmm. um, because my autopsy assistant was very slow at it and was more than happy to give it up to me to do. Um, So I felt the burden of that very early on. Autopsies took much longer because I was doing a big part of the assistance job as well as my own component of it. Um, But then as things kind of settled down and we've hit stride in COVID, um, we're, we're more integrated back with multiple pathologists in the morgue. Our PPE has changed up a bit. You know, can't just wear a regular mask anymore. We wear something called cappers, uh, which are mm-hmm. a flow-through type of filtered helmet. Uh, so you have your own kind of private air supply. Um, learning to even remember to put that on <laughs> was a transition rather than just reaching in the box and grabbing a regular surgical mask or an N95 as the case was back then. Um, but we're, we're getting through it. The deaths have not plummeted or skyrocketed in any category, homicides, overdoses, naturals. The, the COVID deaths are what they are. But our office, as far as overall caseload and practice, has remained pretty stable. Mm-hmm. Um, Certainly there have been other tasks dealing with reporting deaths to the state health department if we get a COVID death, things of that nature. But it's all been very manageable for us.
0: Good, good. So now that you've had a taste of the pandemic, you are a published author with numerous books in the works and working as a forensic pathologist. Dr. Hansma. if you had to choose... I know you're only four years into your practice. Would you do it again?
3: Yes. Unequivocally, yes. Um, That's an easy question for me to answer because I went into medicine specifically to do forensic pathology. I picked this all the way back in high school. Uh, When I first heard about autopsies and forensic pathology, I didn't know it was a thing until my senior year of high school, I heard those words, found out what they were, and just thought, holy cow, they pay people to do that. And so it's been my career goal since I was 17. And as you have you know, gotten a taste of, I have a number of interests and a number of hobbies, things we haven't even mentioned. Uh, play progressive metal guitar. Um, I'm learning biblical Hebrew. I do all sorts of uh, – astronomy, all sorts of stuff. And none of them could I do as a career. They're fun to dabble in, but this is the only thing that I had true aptitude for and true passion for that I could ever do as a career and do it my whole life. And I tell students or anybody else who asks me when they are considering going into medicine, I tell them to take a step back and look at your interests and think what you could or could not do without Can you live the rest of your life and look back and say, no, that's fine that I never went into medicine. If you can do that, I would recommend don't go into medicine. Don't take on the student loan debt. But if you have that drive where you would say, looking back, I will always wish I had done it and should have, then do it. Uh, And more specifically for forensic pathology, well, well, truly, generally, You can't practice medicine as a hobby, right? You can do all your other interests as a hobby, generally speaking. You can't just—I couldn't go be a PhD in dead languages and study biblical Hebrew and then practice medicine and do forensic autopsies as a hobby. Mm -hmm. Can't do it. So the career choice is very easy once you have decided whether or not it's something that you are— fully invested in and that you need it to be a part of your life. And so for me, easily answered, absolutely, would do it all over again in any lifetime. (laughs) I wouldn't even have a choice. I'd have to do it to even earn a paycheck. So (laughs) I'm glad that I found it and it found me and it clicked in 2001 (laughs) when I was... Uh, right out of high school and took my first job as a deaner and did my first autopsy and said, yep, <laughs> this it. is it. <laughs> and it's it's been a, a interesting and winding road since then. And I look back on that with a great degree of nostalgia <laughs> and how how easy life was and when times were good when mm-hmm. I was an autopsy assistant, you know, cleaning the autopsy table at 830 at night with not a care in the world in college and where I am now having to deal with defense attorneys and, and grieved families and things of that nature. It's a much higher degree of responsibility, a much greater level of burden to shoulder, uh, but it's totally worth it. It's totally rewarding. It's, as I mentioned before, I don't ever think about my job with any begrudging feelings. I don't ever feel like I'm caught in a grind. So long answer to just say yes. Yes.
0: Great. Uh, Dr. Hansma, thank you very much for coming on. I really enjoyed this conversation. And for all of our listeners, go on Amazon, grab his book, give it a read. I think you'll enjoy it. It's called The Grave Below.
3: Thank you.
1: Thank you for joining us on Detroit's Daily Docket. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Detroit's Daily Docket. Our theme song is Living by Read the Sun, and our podcast cover art is by Hollow Wicked Prince. Thank you for listening.